Did you say 30 years, Vicki? Yeah. Wow. If I was Billy Graham, you'd be George Beverly Shea. Right? <laughs> Emphasis on Beverly. Okay, hey, Em, could we include the, I'm going to do a little business here in the beginning. Could we include this on the, the, ta on the audio, video, et cetera? There's a couple of things I want to say of, of great importance this morning that will be on the video and audio record so that people can see it throughout who listen to the message today. So, and then we're going to move seamlessly into the message like the stash. Today I have the privilege, in, in fact, I was going to have you do a rare thing today. I, I rarely do this, but I'm going to actually ask you all to give a round of applause, but not until the very end of what I'm doing today. There should be several places where we could do that, and that's understood, but we'll do it at the end. So today I have the privilege of announcing the installment of three new deacons of Tetelestai Church, deaconess in one case. And before I do, I want to honor the board of deacons who served us so well for many years and who held the line even through the, what I called the jubilee years when we were not meeting face to face. And they include in alphabetical order, Ralph Anderson, Dave Bond, Arnold Caffas, Maurice de Simone, Paul Matthews, and Bruce Newshafer. Deserving special mention is Chuck Matone, the head deacon whom God gifted with the vision of this building and who oversaw its renovation for many months before I even showed up here. But even more, who served our Lord Jesus with me shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield through many adversities and triumphs in our ministry's history. He served in the capacity of deacon and in special administrative authority for over 20 years, well over 20 years, and I thank him and all these men who have now the elevated status of deacons emeritus and whose service to Jesus Christ and to the saints is not only remembered but continues unabated and please, well, I'm going to wait. You can give them their, your heartfelt recognition after I finish this. We've kept one of the old war horses on the board of deacons, Dave Bond, right down here in the front. He watches my back. And he's also served the Lord with me for many years, a lot of adversities, a lot of triumphs. Along with Dave, I've appointed Brian Messick as a deacon. You know him. He just said a prayer, an effective one. And even though Brian's gift is that of pastor teacher, as you all very well know, Brian occupies this post and will, as long as I'm around, still around, God knows how long that'll be. And so it's essential in my view that Pastor Messick knows from the inside the workings of the deacon board. And now it's my privilege to introduce to you three new deacons, deaconesses in one case. Again, in alphabetical order, I got a feeling the first one, the will of God, is outworking 
in the Sunday school, Will Milheim. He's a recycled deacon, just so that you know, if you've been a deacon emeritus, it might happen again. Will Milheim, Mrs. Linda Pahoney, Linda, would you please stand up so people will know who you are? And Brian Reed. Brian, would you please stand up? Our three new deacons. And hold it, now that you know who they are. These have already shown their worthiness in grace, as in their constancy and fidelity in Christ Jesus, to serve in this special capacity. As we reinvigorate Committees, you guys can sit now, I don't want to keep you. We're intending to reinvigorate committees, which we may be all together as a church. We can serve, and I'm actually looking out over here and seeing some future deacons, so, so don't think you're being overlooked. The, our intention is to serve even more earnestly as an apostolate in this world and as a diaconate diaconic from the word deacon and all the church is that our intention is to be agents of God's beneficence and benevolence not only with the message but in deeds and in action and in truth as effective witnesses of Jesus Christ and while we're introducing new workers for the kingdom of God I would also like to recognize Kathy McClory who served the Lord and the Saints for many years who along with our deacons, we love and honor today. Kathy has recently retired, as some of you may know, and she has much more time now to spend with her grandkids, which is an even more important service to Christ and challenging. Finally, I want to officially recognize our new office manager right down here, who has worked tirelessly for nearly a year already with alongside of my XO and my wife, Pam. She's my XO, executive officer. And believe me, they did a lot of labor behind the scenes that you, you will never see, but I have seen it, and I have seen that labor. And it continues, doing an often, an often difficult labor of love. It's again, it's a service that's not often seen, but I've seen much of it and appreciate it more than I can say. So please give a, Jennifer, would you please stand up too, a belated welcome to our new office manager whose pleasant voice adorns the Tetelestai telephone announcement, Mrs. Jennifer Messick. And please pray for her too. She has a special challenge this week. Now you may show your applause and... Yes, I agree. And you're probably saying, well, it took you long enough to make that announcement. Well, sometimes transitions take a while. But now, let's get to work. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9, please. Hebrews 9 and verse 24. I thought this morning in my personal prayer... I prayed for many of you by name that are going through health challenges, and I thought, Father, today I pray that the congregation will not hear what I have to say, but that they will hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches today. 
because it's so vital and so important that we, we do so. And my prayer is for each and every one of you here and those who hear this message through other means that Jesus Christ will be magnified in your body and in your life and in your livingness. Hebrews 9.24, for the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere replica of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. In my later years, I've been graced to finally get to read Karl Barth, and I've mentioned him many times. Some of you might get tired of me saying it, but my times in reading his theology, in which he quoted the scripture 250,000 times, I think he is probably the heir of the Apostle Paul for our times. And I don't claim that he's inspired or a scripture writer, but I've had many times in my third floor study when I've been elevated a lot higher than that into the heavens because of the sublime insights that God granted to him, the Swiss theologian of the last century. And speaking of heaven itself, this is what he wrote, and this is one of the things I read very recently. Heaven, he says, in biblical language, is the sum of the inaccessible and incomprehensible side of the created world. So that although it is not God himself, it is the throne of God, the creaturely correspondence to his glory, which is veiled from man and cannot be disclosed except on his initiative. There is no sense in trying to visualize the ascension as a literal event, like going up in a balloon, he said. The point of the story is not that when Jesus left his disciples, he visibly embarked upon a wonderful journey into space, but that when he left them, he entered the side of the created world, which has, was provisionally inaccessible and incomprehensible, that before their eyes, he ceased to be before their eyes. This does not mean, however, that he ceased to be a creature man. What it does mean is that he showed himself quite unequivocally to be the creature, the man, who in provisional distinction from all other men lives on the Godward side of the universe, sharing his throne, existing and acting in the mode of God, and therefore to be remembered as such, to be known once and for all, as this exalted creature, this exalted man, and henceforth to be accepted as the one who exists in this form to all eternity. And Barth does what I like to do, capitalize the word one here because he demonstrates that this man, this creature, this man Christ Jesus is also very God. Hebrews 9.25, then we continue not to offer himself many times. This is so key and so central to our Hebrews exposition. Not many times. And you'll see in print the Greek text of this. Palakas, it says. Not to offer himself many times. And I expand this translation a little bit 
of Hebrews 9.25, to give the sense, it's my job, Nehemiah 8.8, not to offer himself many times as typified by the action of the archpriest of the Levitical order who enters into the sanctuary yearly, that's on Yom Kippur, with the blood belonging to another, that's the blood of animal sacrifice. Offer himself is a key word in the Greek, it's prosphere, auton, offer himself in Hebrews 9.25. It's a reference to Jesus offering of himself before the face of God in heaven, that heretofore inaccessible, incomprehensible part of the universe. The universe is an integral universe, one universe made of two cosmic halves, heaven and earth, joined together as Lou's message made so plain. The sacrifice of himself also is used here. So we have two Greek words, prosphere or prosphéron, and thusias, sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself in Hebrews 9.26 is to be distinguished from the offering of himself in heaven. The sacrifice of himself occurred on earth, on the cross, at the termini of the ages that we will explain. The offering of himself is post that event, post that finished event in the heavens, in heaven, where he now appears continually throughout this time in between, the two great alterations, representing us, interceding for us, our divine helper. And so the sacrifice of himself refers to his self-sacrifice on the cross, his experience of death, the wages of sin. No human being experiences death, the wages of sin. Our death, when we come to the end of our temporal, radically temporary existence on this earth, is nothing to do with the wages of sin. That death, that incomprehensible and horrific death was endured only by one, the man Christ Jesus and God in him. And so our death is simply the natural end of our time in this radically temporary existence. And therefore it is not to be feared. It is a, as many say, a part of life. It's our exit and our liberation into life that is life indeed it is our entrance into the time of Jesus Christ, not our own time. Here we live in our own time. There we live in the time of the one who embodies yesterday, today, and forever. So when we leave this body through death, not the wages of sin, in fact, nothing to do at all with sin. When we leave this life and exit this life, we enter into an existence where we are already bodily resurrected, for we are in the time of Jesus Christ, the new time of our life, the time of our life, which never ends. We enter into his time, and really at the climax of all of Hebrews is Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and into the everlasting tomorrows of the ages to come. He embodies in himself 
all time, redeemed time, all history, redeemed history. He embodies in himself the heavens and the earth, which are joined together in him. And when we enter into what we call death, we enter into life indeed, liberated from the corruption, the corruptibility, the mortality, and the evil of this age, into his time, God's time, and God inhabits eternity, which is merely the inhabiting of perfect time. And so it's not a matter of when do we get resurrected down the road sometime, no. At the moment we leave this life, we are already inhabiting the future in which all are raised together with Christ. Time, as I think Doug Campbell put it very well in his book on Pauline Dogmatics, where Einstein got it right, time is not a continuum or a line of continuum, but a field. And that field is God's time on this side, on the other side of life. I have much more to say about that, and I'm delighted to know that Hebrews 9.27 deals with it. For as it is appointed to men once to die, and that means once to exit this temporal, radically temporary existence in this evil age, it is appointed to us once to die, then meta crescen, then the judgment meaning instantaneously at the moment we exit this life, we experience the judgment of our justification, but we also experience the fire that burns all the dross of the deeds we've done in this life that aren't worth remembering, aren't worth taking with us. And so that moment is a moment in, the, in God's time. And so we have to get our whole thinking readjusted because it has been maladjusted by our own concepts of time. We live in our own time, but we leave this life and enter into God's time. He it is who inhabits eternity in the high and lofty place with him or her also who is of a crushed spirit. In Isaiah 57, 15. That's just the introduction of a new insight. The first inklings of a new insight. Don't be puzzled. Don't be surprised. I'll iron it out just like I did with USSJC, which I'm not done ironing out. And so in his self-sacrifice, Jesus experienced, and only he experienced for everyone, that death which is the wage of sin which is the result of where sin would have led the human race had it not been broken, had it not been destroyed, and it was destroyed in Jesus Christ. So in this case, prosphora, which means offering, and thusia, which means sacrifice, 925 and 26, are distinguished or differentiated Prosphora being Jesus' presentation of himself before the face of God in heaven. And Thusia being Jesus' sacrifice of himself for us on the cross on earth. The sacrifice of himself is the making of propitiation for the sins of the world by Jesus. Propitiation is a term that theologians today are afraid of. In fact, they're even afraid of calling the Holy Spirit by the pronouns that are masculine. Propitiation, 
has to do with the satisfaction of God in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sins, a, sacrifice, a, a satisfaction that God could never have realized through all the animal sacrifices multiplied by millions under the Levitical order. For sacrifices and offerings of that kind, God did not require, nor did he desire, but one sacrifice forever for all time. He did require, he did desire, and he does find exquisite and eternal pleasure in that which Jesus Christ accomplished in the putting away of sin. This distinction between prosphora and thusia mentioned in Ephesians 5.2 that I plan to iron out in future messages was not a distinction necessarily made by Paul in Ephesians 5.2. It is a distinction made by the author of Hebrews. And so in Hebrews, this author sharpens the blade of the word even more sharply, but uses Paul as the pathway to do so. Whether distinguished or contemplated as one event, the offering and sacrifice of Christ, with ongoing saving significance, the saving significance belongs to Jesus Christ. And according to 1 John 2.2, that saving significance is universal. It is for the sins, not of ours only, but the sins of the whole world. While according to Hebrews 5.9, it is eternal as well as universal. For all who come to him, he is the author of eternal salvation. But the all who come to him, in the active sense, are all who were brought to him by the Holy Spirit, and that's all of humanity for all time. Hebrews 5.9 isn't just about eternal salvation, it's about universal salvation, which I have yet to show with more clarity as I sharpen my own blade in my own Gethsemane and my own heaven, which is my study. <laughs> and so he is, Jesus Christ is this great archpriest of ours. He is the God who saves in Psalm 68:20, And that's how he's known. We have no God before us, but the God who is for us. There is no God, but God for us us, for us all, for us, Romans 8, 31, for us all. Thou shalt have no other God before you, as we quote the King James. There is no other God that we should have before us in worship, in contemplation, in occupation, but the God who is for us. Have no God before you except the God who's for you. As the man Christ Jesus, he is the only mediator between God and all of humanity. He is God for us all. And he is also all of humanity for God. In him is all of humanity for God. In him, therefore, God sees all of humanity acting in perfect righteousness toward him. That's how far his representation goes of us. Representing God to us as God for us, he also represents all of us to God as us for God. God sees us as for him. He views us as for him.
And so he does not acknowledge acts and deeds and thoughts that we do against him. They are simply consumed by his love. This one, as representative of all humanity, stands before the face of God. This one who sacrificed himself once and for all, who offers himself before the face of God, is none other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, buried, raised again the third day, who appeared throughout 40 days as God manifested in the flesh. For at first Timothy 3.16 says, that which was manifest in the flesh, being God, is Jesus Christ manifested in 40 days of history in glorified flesh, embodying in himself the past, yesterday, the present, today, and the future forever, all at once. The reason he appears and then disappears from sight is because he inhabits all time. There's a temporal thing to this, and therefore he can appear at once and then disappear in terms of his manifestation in the flesh because he inhabits all time. We have no conception of this. This is only something that God can make accessible to our minds even through the word of God. It's taken me 50 years of study. Well, 50 years of being in him 48 years of study to even begin to realize what this means. I'm looking forward, not to death. I don't look forward to death. I look forward to God. I don't hope for death. I hope for God. I hope for seeing my hope, Jesus Christ, and for being in his time. He is Jesus Christ, whom both Paul and the author of Hebrews chose, and so did I choose this, to speak only of him and to speak of nothing apart from him, nothing disengaged from him, nothing that can be considered apart from him, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'm glad that I'm studying a theological writer who wrote Church Dogmatics, Karl Barth, because for one reason, he's the only theologian I've ever read where you can detect on every page that he's writing what he heard when he listened. And he is one who has chosen, even against the criticisms of fellow theologians, to be communicating Jesus Christ and him crucified and nothing apart from him. He's been criticized by other theologians for being too Christocentric. That's my kind of guy. Criticize me all day long for that. So we're speaking of Jesus Christ. In both Paul and Hebrews, we are summoned, therefore, to look away from everything and everyone else, to look away from wars, rumors of wars, social degradation, the evils of this age, the admired of this age, the celebrities of this age, to look away from everyone and to focus our attention on Jesus, the author and completer of faith, 
who endured such irrational and bitter hostility and hatred of sinners against himself, who endured the cross, who endured the cross, unspeakable event, and who is now exalted and seated, enthroned at the right hand of the majesty that is God, the majesty of universal mercy, the majesty of justice which is God's grace, the majesty that is God, Hebrews 12.2, as well as Hebrews 1.3 and 8.1. The blood of Jesus in Hebrews 10.19 is the blood of an everlasting covenant in Hebrews 13.20. That blood is forever and for all approved by the God of peace who made peace by the blood of his cross to reconcile everything and every being in the heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, all the way down to the blade of grass, and on earth, as well as heaven, to himself. And to make Jesus his son the head of all things, in Ephesians 1.10, and to make all times and all generations of history simultaneous in him and contemporary in him. You see, because Jesus inhabits time past, present, and future. He is our contemporary right now. He is our contemporary. He is our brother. He is that friend that sticks closer than a brother, closer than our breath. And he will be our contemporary when all generations are made contemporaneous. And simultaneity of time occurs in the fullness of time, as Ephesians 1.10 says, and then he makes all times and all generations of history contemporaneous, as he is now the head of the body, which is the proleptic new covenant community, the proleptic fullness of him who is destined to fill up all things with himself. Imagine all human beings of all times and places living at once, but without handicap, without illness, without a lack of perfect wellness, without animosity, without ressentiment, envy, hatred, bitterness, wars, without the many things that we see today sprawled across our streets, sprawled across the Middle East, soon to be sprawled across places that were once considered safe and once considered home and safe. We look away from all this. We expect this great future in Jesus Christ. At the right hand of God in heaven, Jesus is the king of kings. Psalm 110.1. Son, sit at my right hand is the proclamation of a king as his son accedes to the throne. Before the face of God, he is the unique and eternal priest of priests. In Psalm 110.4. He is the righteous one in Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4, who died the just for the unjust, and that's all of us in 1 Peter 3.18, who lives, as we all do, by his own faithfulness. He lives by his faithfulness. I live by his faithfulness. We all live by his faithfulness. The ever-efficacious propitiation and expiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. Please notice, not many times since the foundation of the world, 
not many times since the creation of the integral cosmos made of its two cosmic holes in which Jesus purified both the earth and the heavens by better sacrifices, plural, all comprehended in his one sacrifice. So here it is again, the translation, 924. This is where we are centered. This is my translation. And yes, it's taken this long to come to it. And this is an expansion, as it must be for our understanding. For the Messiah, that's Christ, Jesus, did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, like the priest of the Old Covenant, the archpriest in Hebrews 9-7, which is a mere replica of the true. That's the true heavenly tabernacle. And that means he did not enter a sanctuary made by hands like the archpriest of the order of Aaron did on Yom Kippur, year after year after year. But into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God, what a sublime phrase this is, for us. Not to offer Prospero himself, Auton, not to offer himself many times as typified by the action of the archpriest of the Levitical order who enters into the sanctuary yearly. This practice was still going on in Jerusalem and in the times in which this epistle was written. And those to whom this writer wrote were tempted to return and revert to those sacrifices and to those Yom Kippur festivals and to the feeling they had when they saw the animal's blood and the temporary sense of relief that they had in their conscience. And so this writer is writing with a pastoral purpose, not to offer himself many times as typified by the action of the archpriest of the Levitical order who enters into the sanctuary yearly with the blood belonging to another, Haimatai Alotrio. For if that were the case, Hebrews 9.26, we're coming to what I consider to be the prime verse of Hebrews. For if that were the case, he would have had to suffer many times, Polakas, again, since the foundation of the world. He doesn't say many times once a year. He says many times since the foundation of the cosmos, the creation of the integral cosmos. The reference to the foundation of the cosmos evokes the universal significance of the once and for all offering of Christ of himself. The effect of this sacrifice, the suffering of the death of the Son of God and of his resurrection is cosmic as well as community, as well as individual, as well as universal. Its effect is also diachronic, which means it redeems all of time itself a creature. Time is itself a created reality. All of history he redeems. Past, present, and future, yesterday today and forever. The idea of Jesus offering himself in the Holy of Holies many times would mean that he would have had to suffer for the removal of sin many times. 
That notion is absurd in the extreme, for sin itself was removed once. So the notion is absurd in the extreme. If one sacrifice took away sin per se, sin itself in all its comprehensible self, sinfulness. If one sacrifice took away sin per se from the foundation of the cosmos, the creation of the universe, then it is absurd that he would have had to offer himself many times to God. This in turn reflects on the absurdity of the return of the first readers of Hebrews to the many sacrifices of the archpriest who keeps on going year after year into a mere earthly replica of the heavenly holy of holies with the blood of a sacrificial animal. The absurdity of it. On top of this, the phrase from the foundation of the cosmos evokes another phrase that's very famous in Rev the book, the book of Revelation. The lamb that was slaughtered from the foundation of the cosmos. The lamb slain from the foundation or slaughtered from the foundation of the cosmos. Revelation 13.8. Some take this to be descriptive of the inscription of names into the book of life of the slaughtered lamb rather than the slaughter itself of the lamb. But I think it's highly more likely that the slaughter of the lamb is supposed to correspond with the foundation of the world, meaning that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the cosmogenetic act. That's the act that brought about a new genesis of a new creation. When he said to Telestai, it is finished, or it's equivalent in the Aramaic, when he uttered that, that was the creation of the new cosmos, the new heavens and a new earth. And so to me, the passion of the Lamb of God is the action that brought about the new creation. And that fulfills Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, NRK, which is in Christ. God created the heavens and the earth. That which is in the beginning is also true in the end. For Genesis 1-1 speaks of the final act of God as well as the primal act of God in creating a new heavens and new earth joined together in Christ. There's much to be said about this and there's many ways to look at it and that's what I intend to do. The passion of the Lamb of God may be considered therefore the act of Genesis which some call the cosmogenetic act, putting cosmos together with Genesis, you have cosmogenetic. The cosmogenetic act, the act that brings the cosmos into being was the slaughter of the Lamb of God, which is why at the end, when he knew that it was finished, he said, it is finished from the cross. This corresponds to Revelation 21.5 when the enthroned God said, it is done. Look, I'm making everything new. God on the throne is equivalent to Jesus on the cross, enthroned on the cross. For if you saw a crucified man, you would see him actually not just hanging, but seated. And he was seated on the cross. Jesus on the cross, the slaughtered lamb, saying, it is finished, 
is equivalent to God on the throne saying, it is done. I have made new heavens and a new earth. It's much more than the interpretations of Tetelestai that end in paid in full or some other thing, some rubber stamp or something's paid for. It is the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. It is the end of the old humanity, the old man. It is the final day of an old fading covenant. It is the first point of origin of a new man, of a new creation. And so put off the old man is what we are told. And there's much more meaning to it when we understand this. The passion of the lamb may be considered then the act of the genesis of a new universe, the new heavens and the new earth, with the heavenly Jerusalem as its capital. You could compare if you want, but you might get depressed on one side of this, the capital of the United States of America with the capital of the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is called the mother of us all, and she has one characteristic about her. She's free. The Statue of Liberty that adorns our shores is becoming a mockery because we are anything but free as men and women tend to grab for power. And we are rapidly becoming a tyranny of laws and a tyranny of anarchy. But the New Jerusalem is the mother of us all. She's free as all her children are free. You will always be free. No matter what they do, no matter what they legislate, no matter when they legislate against morality instead of for it. Much has been said, you don't legislate morality. Well, let me tell you this, you don't legislate immorality either. Because men say it's right doesn't mean God says it's right. And so when you stand for the right, make sure you know that you're standing fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free. We are of the New Jerusalem the Jerusalem from above. She is our mother. We are her children. And like Sarah's children, we are free. And therefore, stand fast in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free in Galatians 5.1. Do not be brought under a yoke of slavery, whether it's the slavery to your old man or someone else's old man or to an association of old men. The New Jerusalem is the capital of the new creation. And you know what? You're already citizens of that heaven and citizens of that capital, that New Jerusalem. You have come. Where does it say that? Hebrews 12, 22. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Always remember that. And let that Jerusalem come into your mind because if your hopes are pinned on politics and politicians and men and associations with men, cursed is he who trusts in man and cursed is the one who trusts in the arm of the flesh. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord. The Lord who redeems history may just have a plan to redeem your history and mine and the history of this nation in our time in the time of our children, in the time of our children's children, against all sight, against all empirical evidence, the Holy Spirit is at work. 
And so I want to close with the pastoral purpose. All of this, what I've said today, does not take away from the pastoral purpose of the author of Hebrews. The reason I have a special affinity to Hebrews is it was written by a pastor, a pastor teacher, a pastor who teaches. If you ever ask a pastor to say something in one of your gatherings, you better wait for the truth that he's going to teach. He's going to teach. You ask me to speak somewhere, I'm going to teach. You're not going to like it. People won't like it. Can you speak at a funeral? Yeah, I'll teach. What will I teach? The word of God. What will I teach at a funeral? What I, told, what I said today about death. It's not about you and your grief. It's about Christ and his death and resurrection. If you're going to ask a pastor to, teach, to speak somewhere, be careful. He might teach, and he might just go a little long. None of this is to take away from the pastoral strategy. His pastoral strategy, how can I persuade this little house church, probably somewhere in the Roman Empire, to re not to return to the now sinfully redundant offerings of the Levitical cultus with all of its attractions and all of its fading glory, which amounts to a neglect of so great a salvation wrought by Jesus Christ and great archpriest who poured out blood and whose poured out blood resulted in the forgiveness of sins and whose sprinkled blood achieved the complete and decisive purging of the conscience. It also highlights the absurdity of us today returning to the memory of our sins, to guilt over them, or to fear of punishment of them in the future. That's absurd. Put off the old man altogether, the one who did all those shameful, guilty things. Put them off and put on the new man. The covenantal application runs through the central section of Hebrews. We talked about the new covenant in Hebrews 8, 8 to 12. And the New Covenant is mentioned again and quoted, in fact, at the end of the central section in Hebrews 10, 17 and 18, where there is a full and final sacrifice for, for sin. There's no more offerings to be offered. And so the redundancy of this is absurd. The covenantal application runs through the central section of Hebrews. Jesus, the Messiah, appearing at the Suntaleia of the ages, that's the termini of the ages, Suntaleia of the ages, refers to the event of his self-sacrifice. This word you're going to see in print is S-U-N-T-E-L-E-I-A. I don't want to write it now. I don't have time anyways. But Suntaleia, this is a very unusual word, and it means termini plural, even though it's a singular word. At the end of the ages means literally at the termini. That means one age has come to its final moment at the cross. Another age has come to its point of origin at the cross. At the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ was the terminal point, the end point, the termination of a covenant called the Old Covenant. But it was also the end point and the final point and the vanishing point of the old humanity. 
the old man. It was also the vanishing point of an old creation, a creation marked by corruption and slavery to sin. And it was the point of origin of a new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. This was the moment, the point of origin. So there is a terminus ad quo, which is a end of a certain point, and a terminus ad quem, which is the point of origin of another point. That's what happened at the cross. It is the terminus ad quem, the Latin term, which is the limit to which the old covenant went. It was the latest possible date of the old covenant era. And the terminus ad quo, another Latin term, is the date or point in eternity and time, which marks the point of origin of the everlasting age of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Always efficacious for the forgiveness of the sins of many. I'm going to repeat this because it's important. This is the center. This is the termini of Hebrews. This is the center point of Hebrews. This is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is when he offered himself, when he sacrificed himself. This is terminus ad Quem, T-E-R-M-I-N-U-S, another word, A-D, third word, Quem, Q-U-E-M, Terminus Ad Quem. That's the limit, the latest possible date of an, uh, of an age, the evil age, the end of this age. And then there is at the same moment, at the same termini, at that same point, there is the Terminus Ad Quo. Same word, terminus, ad, but then Q-U-O instead of Q-U-M. That's the date or point in eternity and time which marks the point of origin of an everlasting age of the new, co new covenant in Jesus' blood. Blood that is always efficacious for forgiveness. Sprinkled blood that's always efficacious for purification of the conscience from guilt and of the soul from fear. Hebrews 9.26, then here it is, and I'll close with this. My translation of Hebrews 9.26b, and this to me is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of the heart. This is the cross, the termini, where Jesus Christ offered himself. But as it is, noon is the word here, noon, duh, as it is. The now here refers to an ongoing present tense, but now. Once, hapax, at the termini, that's suntaleia, one point, two termini happened, an end point and an origin point. Now, as it is, once, at the termini of the ages, the climax and consummation of the purpose of all God's ages, for the removal, athetasis, this is a very, very strong word, for the removal of sin. For the removal of sin. How did, this, how did sin itself become removed? By Jesus Christ becoming sin for us. That's how sin was removed, to be no longer in the old, then the new creation. 
as it is once at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. I'm reading the Greek order now. It then says he has been manifested. Manifested is the last word in the Greek text, phanerao. And so that is what is emphasized. Phanerosis is another word for apocalypsis. And so Hebrews becomes what Revelation is, what all of Paul's writings together as a single corpus are, what the Bible itself, Old and New Testament, becomes. It becomes a shocking revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance, a shocking revelation of Jesus Christ and him crucified and the universally saving, transformative, and transfigurative effect of his death on the cross. That's what it's all about. It's all right here. And so Jesus' decisive putting away of sin, per se, is exactly how the elect one indeed of 1 Peter 1.20, in whom we were chosen in love before time, was manifested in these last times for you. I'll say it again in 1 Peter 1.20. He who was verily foreknown, truly elect and determined before time, was manifested in these last times for you. For you. And I think of a poem written recently by Bill Carpenter of the Potter's Shed called For You. This 1 Peter 1.20 is fulfilled in Hebrews 9.26. How was this elect one indeed manifested for you? He came and appeared once at the termini of the ages by the sacrifice of himself to put away sin once and for all and forever. In these last days, God has spoken to us in a son whom he made heir of all things, by whom he created the ages themselves and programmed those ages to be all summed up in him, who made purification for sins, who sat down at the right hand of the Father, this one who is the actual radiance of his light, the actual radiance of Yahweh in a man, is the one in whom God has spoken in these last days, who has earned a name for himself that is better than any name ever given to the angels, who at the mention of his name, in that song that Vicki sang with us today, I actually sang on the way down here. There's just something about that name. It is at the mention of that name in the eschaton, in the time of the completion of all time, when every knee will genuflect of all people of all times and spaces, of creatures in the heavens and creatures under the earth and creatures on the earth, all of humanity in all of its times, all the angelic beings will bend their knee and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Better said, Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father. Father, be glorified in what is said today. May what is heard, what was heard today, not be the words of a preacher, not the words of a pastor teacher, but the words of the Holy Spirit speaking to the church, the words of Jesus Christ speaking in the Holy Spirit to the church, the words, Father, of you 
For you yourself gave yourself in your Son to secure the reconciliation of man, of all of us, to yourself. You did not simply give your Son. You gave yourself in your Son to put away sin and to reconcile us to you. For that we are grateful. And Father, you, the God of peace, to you we are so grateful. For you have brought up from the realm of the dead the great shepherd of the sheep who shepherds us now. May the remainder of our life on earth until death is our blessed removal from this temporal existence. May the remainder of our time here be spent in listening to hear the still small voice. And though we will only do this imperfectly and we will do this stutteringly and faultingly and not flawlessly at all, though we will do this partially, help us to do this more and more, that our lives may be directed in reality and moment by moment, without bondage, without slavery, without yokes of, or burdens of unrealistic expectations. May we simply listen and learn from a place of perfect peace and to be directed by you, by a voice of peace, a voice of joy, a voice of eternal love. Direct us, Father, and guide us with your voice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may stand.